Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4, verses 27 through 38. John 4, verses 27 through 38. This is the last in our Get Out series, putting discipleship into action. That's what we have been looking at these last uh, three, and now today will be four weeks getting us ready to get into the Easter season. Uh, with, uh, for preachers, Easter being at the beginning of the month is kind of a curse and kind of a blessing. Uh, I would rather have a series that leads up to Easter at the end of the, the month. Instead, we're going to start our series next month uh, with Easter and the resurrection. That's okay. God knows what he's doing. I just follow along. I just, I just go untie the cult, right, and, and trust that he's got it all set up. John chapter 4. This morning we are getting out of our chair. Get out of your chair. So we've uh, gotten out of our wallet, gotten out of our prejudices, gotten out of our selfishness, and this morning it is get out of your chair. This passage that we're going to look at this morning sums up very nicely, I believe, those other three get outs that we went over. The, the getting out of our wallets, prejudices, and selfishness, because once we get out of those things, and it's not a comprehensive list, it's a three-week series list, there are other issues we need to get out of, other areas in our lives we need to get out of. Once we have gotten into discipleship habits, then we get out of these bad habits that have kept us from putting our discipleship into action. There are many others, but once we have opened ourselves up, I believe, to these three areas that I've talked about, God will begin to trigger some other thoughts in you. I don't have to tell you everything you're doing wrong. That's the Holy Spirit's job, and He will, especially if you listen. Oh, He'll tell you if you don't listen, but it just gets worse. Uh, the, the, uh, the encouragement gets worse. But if we can get past these first three and get those in mind that I believe we will begin to see others in a way that will propel us, compel us to get out of our chairs and take the gospel message to them. That'll be the result. The result will be us getting out of our chair. Now in verses 1 through 26 of chapter 4, we have the story of the Samaritan woman, Jesus' encounter with her. He's uh, sent... The, the disciples into town to buy some food, a town called Sychar. They, he sent them in to buy some food, and while he's there, he comes up on this Samaritan woman at the well, or rather, I think she comes up to him while he's sitting there, and he asks her to give him something to drink, and they have this conversation about, first of all, why are you talking to me, and, and, and what kind of water are you talking, and, and we're, that's not the sermon this morning, so I'm not going to focus on that, but I encourage you, if you didn't do your D group reading this week, to go back and do that reading so that you'll catch up on where we are this morning. He has this conversation with her, and, and what we will see, if you go back and read it, and if you kind of think in terms of the past three messages, what I would like for you to see is that this Samaritan woman needed to, to get out of her wallet. Now, this passage is not about money at all, but if you remember when I talked about getting out of your wallet, I told you that passage in Micah is much more about obedience 
than it is about finances. Finances was just the example for how the people were being disobedient. And the Samaritan woman needed to figuratively get out of her wallet because she needed to understand that her obedience to God, go back and read chapter 4, had nothing to do with which mountain they worshipped on. That was her concern when they had the conversation. Well, the Jews say over here, and we say over here, so I don't know what we're supposed to do. And Jesus tells her that that's not the important thing. The important thing is being obedient, following me, being uh, a worshiper that worships in spirit and in truth. And then he tells her that he is the Messiah that she's been looking for. So that's our background. She just needs to be obedient. She needs to get it out of her wallet. And we are going to look at this passage through the lens of the previous three Sundays because it worked out that there are some situations that needed to be dealt with in this passage that go along with what we talked about. I think you'll see it as we move through the passage. But read with me. Verses 27 through 38 of John chapter 4. Just then his disciples arrived, and, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime... The disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four, months, four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. So how does this passage show us that we should get out of our chair? Better yet, how does this passage relate to the previous three messages we've looked at. Well, first, in verse 27, we see that we are to go to the despised. Get out of your chair and go to the despised. The disciples arrived, they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. But nobody was brave enough to say anything to Jesus. That's a paraphrase of the second half of verse 27. But that's what it works out to be. The disciples needed to get out of their prejudices. And what is striking in this passage is they're not concerned that she's a Samaritan. They're concerned that she's a she. Notice they don't say they were amazed he was talking to a Samaritan. They were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Now, there's some, there's some background here. There are some clues to who or in their eyes what this woman might be. Middle of the day, and she is there getting water all by herself. Doesn't happen. 
the ladies would come to the well in the early morning, in the late evening, when it was cool to get water. That's when they would draw their water. It would be a nice little uh, 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 relationship building time. They'd get together and they'd talk and they'd make fun of their husbands and gripe about their kids. And you know, you know what ladies do. When, I guess that's what ladies do when they get together and talk. Um, I'm sure they talk about spiritual things too. My wife has given me a dirty look. So what I mean is, y'all have edifying and uplifting conversations every time you get together, and I'm sure that's what they did at the well as well. My point is, it was a very important social time for them. And she's not there at that time. She's there at the worst possible time. So already, the disciples are clued in to what Jesus already knows about her. That's, we learned that in verses 1 through 26, that she's had five husbands and the, sixth per, the man she's with right now isn't her husband. We know why she's there at noon all by herself. And the disciples are probably putting two and two, two and two together. And that's their concern. Jesus is talking to a woman. Notice that they won't say it out loud. They won't say it to Jesus. Nobody said, I mean, according to Scripture, according to John, these were thoughts that were going on in their head. And Jesus answers the thoughts, and apparently, Jesus tells John later on, or probably all of them, I know what y'all were thinking. I knew this was going on in your head. Because John writes down, everybody was thinking this. You know when you won't say it out loud, that it's probably a sinful thought, right? I mean, you probably shouldn't. You shouldn't say it out loud. I mean, that is, that is good Holy Spirit work in your life to shut your mouth and, and clip your tongue there a little bit and say, All right, you know, keep that to yourself. But they knew. They, they, they knew, yeah, this... If we say anything, that's going to be bad. We need to leave this one alone. But Jesus knew anyway, right? It didn't mean they needed to say it out loud just because they thought it. No, that's, a, that's not something you do. Well, I thought it. I might as well say it. No, no, that's not a thing. But you do need to take captive your thoughts. That's what Scripture tells us to do. They weren't brave enough to say it out loud. They weren't brave enough to question Jesus. Why are you doing this? Because, because they knew the answer. They knew why Jesus was doing this. They knew Jesus loved Samaritan women just as much as he loved Jewish men. He loved guys that were willing to lay down their nets and follow him to learn from him as much as he loved, or rather, he loved the, uh, the woman who had been in multiple adulterous affairs, that's what we're led to believe, and, or had at least a uh, relationship divorce, relationship divorce, relationship divorce, not what they would have called the highest moral standing in society. He loved her as much as these upstanding businessmen, middle class, salt of the earth kind of guys who would lay everything down to follow him. They were equally as important he did not look at the disciples or the Pharisees or Jews or moral people or good people any 
were uh, any, uh, any better, look on them any better, with any more love than he looked on what those same people would have called the dregs of society, the worst of the worst, those that do those bad things that we don't do because we're Baptists or Christian or whatever else. He loved them just as much as he loved the, quote, good people. The Samaritans had to get out of their prejudices. And once they got out of their prejudices, they had to get out of their chairs. They had to go to the despised. Folks, those for whom we carry prejudices aren't going to come to our church. If they know or suspect that we carry some sort of prejudice against them, they will not come in our doors. We have to get out of our chairs and go to them. We have to build relationships. We have to take the initiative. We have to love them enough to go where they are, to be friends with them. And look, y'all, I would love to stand here today and tell you I am the absolute best at this, do as I say, as well as do as I do. But I can't. I am a natural, enjoyable, or enjoying, uh, I enjoy it, introvert. I don't like to go to places and make friends. It's not comfortable for me. I have to, people have to make the, take the initiative with me. It's, it, it's the way I am. It's not good. I force myself out of that. Uh, I've told you this before, coming into a new church four and a half years ago, I have to force myself to do things that I'm not comfortable with, and then I go home exhausted from those things. Now, once relationships are had, I'm fine. Great. I will. You are welcome to drop by my house anytime you want to. I would love to have you unannounced, ding dong, there you are, come on in, we'll make coffee, no big deal. I love it. I am not going to do that to you. I'm just not. Unless we have already developed the relationship that says I can, because my assumption as an introvert is one, you don't want me, and two, I don't want to. Right? So that's me. So to go out and make a relationship, and y'all, that's with a group of believers, with whom I have much in common that most likely would welcome me anytime I show up at your house. Now, I'm supposed to do that with people that I'm not like. With people, truth be told, I don't want to be around the things that they do. I don't want to experience it. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. I don't want... And yet, and yet... I have got to get my behind out of my chair and do it. And make a point to befriend people who are not like me. It's hard enough to make friends with people who are like me. But you know what we have? And some of y'all are sitting there going, "Mm mm-hmm, that's me. And some of you are going, I have no idea what he's talking about. How can he not make friends with people? I'm friends with everybody. I know, you make me sick. But that's what we have to do. We have the Holy Spirit. 
The same Holy Spirit that tells you extroverts, cool it a little bit, you're going to scare them and run them off, tells the introverts, go, say hey. How are you? Introduce yourself. You might find that they're an extrovert just waiting for somebody to say something. You might not have to say anything after that. They just start rattling and keep going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a, Tom does this to me all the time. I'm going to point him out. Just ask a question. He knows if he asks me a question, he's got 10 to 15 minutes. He doesn't have to talk. Because I'm going to talk, I'm going to answer that. Hey, oh, yeah, if I know it, we're, oh, yeah, and I'll do it for however long. Well, it's a gimmick. But it's a good gimmick. Get them to talk. But go to the people that are the despised. Go to the people for whom you carry prejudices. Because I guarantee you, you will not break those prejudices outside of a miracle of God in your heart until you begin to have relationships and conversations with those people that you believe are the worst. Make friends with other races. Make friends with homosexuals. Make friends with drunkards and alcoholics, uh, redundant, uh, addicts. Make friends with the people with loud mufflers that apparently go get donuts at 10 a.m. every Sunday. Or 10.15. Make friends with those people. Force yourself out of your comfort zone to go to the, quote, despised. Verses 28 and 30 then tell us to get out of our chair and go to the difficult. Now, this is very similar with some nuance. Verses 28 and 30 say, Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see the man that told me everything I ever did. A slight exaggeration, but in her mind, he had told her everything she ever did. Because she knew what the worst things were in her life, and for that, uh, and that is how she defined her life. Do you hear that? According to the scripture, he said, you're with a man you're not married to, you've been divorced four times. You've had five other husbands, you're not married to the one you're with. That's all she told him, or he told her about herself. And yet she tells everybody, he told me everything I did. Because she defined herself by those things. She probably knew they were wrong. Let's, let's give her the benefit of the doubt and say she did know they were wrong. But let's also, just for fun, assume that she didn't. There was nothing wrong with that. It's my life. I'll live it like I want to. Doesn't matter what anybody else says. She still defined herself by that. The person who has sinned greatly... Let's make it very personal. The person who has, the lady who has had an abortion or multiple abortions and is living with the pain and the regret of that defines her life by those moments. And she needs a believer to come into her life and she might be a believer. Let's just say that too. Based on statistics, a lot of them are believers. She needs a Christian to come into her life, befriend her, 
tell her everything she had done, and love her anyway. But let's take it to the other side. Let's take it to the homosexual, the, the transgender that believes they are doing nothing wrong. They don't care what Scripture says. They don't even believe there's a God. So it doesn't matter. They get to choose whatever they get to choose. They need a believer who would come into their lives and love them and have conversations with them and be willing to tell them everything they've done in their life because obviously they define themselves by that. That is who they are. They are a transgender. They are a homosexual. And their life revolves around that. And the culture tells them, tells them that it should. And a believer needs to come in to their lives because they need it. And yes, believer, it will be difficult. Notice what Jesus does not do. He does not gloss over what she's done. And here's where I get the, the uh, feeling and get my opinion that she knew what she was doing was sinful. He didn't have to go there with her. She knew it. Once he mentioned it, she knew what he was getting at, especially once she determined he was the Messiah. He was uh, the one they were expecting. She knew what was going on. He just needed to be honest with her. Yes, these are the things you have done. But yes, the Messiah is what's important. If you follow Him, if you come to Him, Him in this case being me, Jesus would have said, then you can worship God straight on because of your relationship with me. And that's what the woman does when she goes to the town. The woman is getting out of her selfishness and prejudices. Michael, where do you see selfishness? I'm glad you asked. First sentence, first fragment. The woman left her water jar. She hasn't gotten water for Jesus, as far as we can tell. She hasn't gotten her own water, as far as we can tell. And then once the conversation is had, in her rush, in her excitement, in her overwhelming response to Jesus, she leaves her water jar. She leaves her basic need. Remember, we talked about Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, and number two on the list was food. Uh, no, rather, number one on the list was food. She left that. She was no longer concerned about the water that she had to have to live. But she also left her esteem. She left her uh, uh, relationship with any people. Now, she was known in town. They knew she had had, four husband, uh, had five husbands and was living with somebody who wasn't her husband. They knew who she was in town. But she was willing to go to the townspeople and tell them, admit to them, confess, he just told me everything about my life. And I promise you, there were people sitting in that group going, mm-hmm, we know about her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, we could have told him. He didn't have to come to you. We, we, we could have let him know everything you've done, because we all know. She was willing to take on 
more shame, which was, what, three or four of Maslow's esteem? She didn't care about esteem. She hadn't had esteem in years, but what little bit she had left, she had to go and say in front of all these townspeople, I just, had to, I just, I just admitted to everybody what, I, what I've done. I mean, I just admitted to the Messiah, only because he pointed it out, but still. So she had to get out of her selfishness. She had to get out of her prejudices. Don't think she didn't have prejudices against those townspeople. I've never read the Scarlet Letter. Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? Is that who wrote that? Thank you. Never read it. But I'm certain, if, if I, I think I've got a general idea of the plot... The, the, the one who had to wear the letter didn't have a great opinion of everybody else in town. The, the one who committed adultery, the big A on her clothing. She did not think, go around town thinking, well, these are fine folks. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really happy to live here. This was totally, absolutely what needed to happen. And, and boy, I'm humbled by it. I don't think that was her opinion. And that would not have been the opinion of the Samaritan's, a Samaritan woman. She would have held extreme prejudices against these women, and likely some of her husbands were in this crowd. Jesus didn't say they'd all died. I think it would have been a different conversation if that had been the reason that she was no longer with them. He just says, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't your husband. And she had to give up her prejudice against exes and mean people so that she could go and tell them, could this be the Messiah? Notice the question. She wasn't even willing to say, she, she knew she did not have the standing in town to come in and say, I've just met the Messiah. Because if you go back, Jesus says, in verse 26, in answer to her statement, I know that when the Messiah, that the Messiah is coming, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. She's already been told he's the Messiah. She is in such a position with the townsfolk that she won't go to the men of town and say, I met the Messiah. The dude said he was the Messiah. But she goes instead and says, he's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? She is still putting herself in a position to be shamed further. Because what, they could, have, what could they have said? Um, yeah, the Messiah is going to talk to somebody like you. Sure, got it, thanks. All right, go get your water. We're going to go over here with the good people. But that's not what happened. In verse 30, they left the town and they made their way to him. The woman got out of her prejudices, out of her selfishness, and that is what we need to do. We need to get out of our chair and go to the difficult, the ones that will mock us. The ones that will turn against us. The ones that 
don't want to hear it. And I'm not saying you stand there and yell in their face, but I am saying that you make the attempts. I've heard people say before that, that Jesus never went back to someone that refused him, and therefore we shouldn't either. And I, I don't see that in Scripture for us. I don't see that that's what we're supposed to do. I see that we build relationships, we make friendships, we talk to people, we care enough about them to go to them regularly, to be a constant witness in their lives. Might they cut us off? Might they end the relationship long before we get a chance to do that? Possibly. Well, that, in that case, that's on them. But we don't say, oh, you said no once? Well, <laughs> I'm done with you. Next, we see that we need to get out of our chair and go with confidence. Verses 31 through 33. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? Some of your translations say, uh, Meanwhile, and this is totally 80s kid thing, but if you all remember the cartoon, uh, Justice League, it was Batman and Superman and, and the Wonder Twins. They were my favorite, by the way. Um, you remember that cartoon? And, and you'd have this uh, uh, scene here that would be going on, and then the announcer would come on. Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice. Well, sorry, that's just what I think of every time I see meanwhile. That guy talks in my head. So, meanwhile, back where they were with the water jar, Jesus is telling them, be confident when you go. Don't worry about things that you think you would need. Jesus is completely and totally out of his selfishness. Now, yes, Jesus never had selfishness to get out of. But that's why he is such an example to us in this passage. He shows us how to get out of our selfishness. His basic need was not what Maslow said, right? We, we, we said that last week when we talked about getting out of our selfishness. We don't need food and security and, and, and love and esteem to be actualized and reach everything. We need Jesus to be actualized and reach everything, and then we trust Him for any food and security and love and esteem that He thinks we need. Jesus' basic need was not food or water that he never got, but obedience to his calling. That was Jesus' basic need. I mean, you could say not only was he out of his selfishness, but he was out of his wallet. His most important act in life was to be obedient. The father never had to say to him, Son, you're robbing me. Father, how am I robbing you? like we looked at when we looked at Malachi. He never had to ask the question, am I being selfish? He never had to wonder, am I prejudiced against some people and therefore not loving them the way I should? He was exactly what he should be because he was perfect, just like God. And he was an example of, to us of what we should be, that the gospel was more important than even eating. Now, the truth is, a great way to build relationships with people that you aren't like is to eat with them. I mean, we, we love to eat. Y'all like crawfish boils. I don't know why. 
I do like them fried. I had them on a pasta yesterday. It was really good. But anyway, but that is a great opportunity. You, do you, you know why I don't like crawfish? Boil, crawfish boils, rather. It's not because of the crawfish. Usually it's because there are people there I don't know. And many of the crawfish boils I've been to, invited to that didn't begin in the church had a lot of um, beverages that I normally don't partake of, and, and I just, I'm like, eh, I don't want to, eh. And you know what? That's stupid. That's on me. That's, that's me using excuses of my discomfort to not go where I need to be. I need to go with confidence. And, and, and what better confidence could I have as someone who doesn't like crawfish, I'm clearly not going for the food, right? So, you know, I, I could say with Jesus, well, my food is to do the will of the Father, so I'm not going to eat your boiled crawfish. Thank you, though. See, it's a great excuse. I just put it off on Jesus. I'm not here to eat. I'm here to be a blessing or, or whatever, or say the blessing, because usually the pastor is the one that always has to say the blessing. The point is, we can go with confidence to whatever dis, uh, 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 person, group, difficult, despised, uh, that, that we need to go to with the confidence that everything we need will be provided for us. Y'all, people go to the mission field with little or nothing. Now, we have a wonderful cooperative program where we get to fund our missionaries and make sure they have everything they need. By the way, North American Mission Board, we are Annie Armstrong giving, right? Uh, uh, Easter offering is going on right now. Make sure you are giving to that. How's that for uh, uh, working the plug in? But for years and years and years, missionaries just went into an area they didn't know anything about and didn't know what was going to come from it, but they just went with confidence that obedience was more important than security. Obedience was more important than food. Obedience was more important than their esteem. Obedience was more important than their love. Read some of our missionaries like William Carey and Judson, Adoniram Judson, and what they lost... I mean, you have guys whose, whose wives or children died on the boat ride over to the mission field. They lost their loves. They would get over there and they'd be stricken with disease almost immediately. And sometimes they would die within weeks or months of getting there. Or they'd marry again. Uh, I think it was William Carey married again. And she died in, on the mission field. Because their self-actualization, the top of Maslow's pyramid, was to go to the mission that God has given us with confidence, depending on Him, for everything else. The other four levels that we think we need. The gospel to Jesus was more important than eating. We've got to get out of our chair and go in obedience. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish his work. This is the height of getting out of your wallet. For Jesus' obedience is what gave him life. Not doing, not eating, not, not being, nothing but obedience. Now, of course, Jesus had to have food. He was 100% human. He had to have food to live. He had to have water 
to live. But eating was secondary, not primary. What he would eat, when he would eat, how much he would eat. Those were all things that God would take care of. Look at the lilies of the field and see how they're dressed. Will your father not take care of you better than he does them? The sparrows neither reap nor sow, yet the father takes care of them. Not one dies that he doesn't know when they die and and where they are. Every hair on your head is counted. Every, Every breath you take, every tear is collected. Do you think that that God is going to let you go if you follow in obedience and suddenly he's going to stop? Thanks now that you're obedient, I'm not going to meet any of the other needs. Absolutely not. But obedience is first. All the other things are second. I think there's a verse somewhere. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, food, security, love, esteem, whatever, will be added to you. You'll get the things you need. Seek God's kingdom first. In Matthew, Jesus puts it another way. He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The word of God being obedience. Obedience is better than food. Ezekiel said that God's uh, words taste like honey when he was ordered to eat it. It tasted like honey to my lips. That is the, the word of God being the food. Obedience is food. It's all metaphor, right? We don't, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat my Bible. No, that's not what Michael's saying. That would be dumb. Here he is saying, though, Ezekiel, Jesus, when he said man does not live by bread alone, he's saying that food is obedience. What's important is not your stuff, not taking care of you. What's important is obedience. And y'all, I'm talking to myself. I like stuff. I like having plenty of groceries. I like not having to worry about those things. But there have been enough times in my life where I knew to be obedient could end up in losing much of that security. And I have had to choose obedience. I've had enough of those opportunities in my life to know God will never let us go. God will never let us down. God will always provide what we need. And each time I've been worried about my obedience leading to my insecurities, I've never lost those things that I thought made me secure. Not once. And then finally, we're told we see that we need to get out of our chair and go with expectation. Verses 35 through 38. Jesus says, don't you say there's still four more months and then comes the harvest? I'm telling you, open your eyes and look. Everything is ready for harvest. As you go out with expectation, put selfishness aside so that it isn't your expectations. What do I mean? Go out with expectation, but not your expectations, because that's just another form of selfishness. God, if I go out to the mission field, you're going to give me, and you have your list, 
whether it's lots of converts or if I go and make this, build this relationship or try to build this relationship with this person, God, you're going to make that relationship work. No, they may hate you for the rest of your life, never talk to you again. That, that, that may happen. And that is okay because that is in God's hands. But we put our selfishness aside. We put our concerns aside. We put our timetable aside. See, this, this phrase, four more months and, and, uh, until the harvest, was actually an idiom. It was a, a saying. He's not literally talking about, on this date, it's four more months until the harvest. Y'all know that. Right? He's not talking about agriculture. It, it's similar, a similar saying to what we would say, Rome wasn't built in a day. Which means, be patient. It's going to take a little time. Jesus is saying, this is what you say. You say, be patient. I'm saying, you can't have patience in this. This is not a time for patience. Because really what he's saying is your patience is just selfish procrastination. Oh God, oh I am. But I'm, I'm waiting until that person's really ready to hear from me. I'm waiting until that person is really, I'm waiting that person until, uh, until that person asks me about the gospel. I'm not going to bring it up. I want to know they're really, really ready. I'm waiting until this introvert, I'm waiting until they call me to come to their house before I go to their house. I'm waiting until they initiate the relationship before I initiate the relationship. I just want to be patient because I don't want to run them off. And Jesus says that you can't have patience. You say, have patience. And he uses this analogy of the, the saying from agriculture. Four months and then the harvest. I'm saying the harvest is now. Now is the time to build the relationship. We all know we got enough agricultural sense that the sower casts the seed and then four months you, you harvest it. Or sometime in the future. Jesus is saying that the sower and the reaper are actually working at the same time. They're seeing the same harvest. That doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, in this society, the sower got paid much less than the reaper. The reap, it was, sowing was, uh, tended to be harder work, and they got paid less than the, the one who would reap. Now they're seeing the same harvest. Now they're actually getting the same pay. Now, it is a process of sowing and reaping over time. You may sow seed into someone numerous times for years before they come to Christ. You may not be the one to sow, sow the seed at all. You may be the one to reap. You may sow the seed and they never reap. They get saved at your funeral. We think that would stink. Seventy years I prayed for this person to come to Christ, and they wait until my funeral to get saved. Wasn't your job to reap. It was your job to sow. It was somebody else's job to reap. Your job may, to be, uh, may be either, it may be both, but your job is never neither. You don't get to say, I'm neither sower nor reaper. No, you are both. And if you will get out of your wallet if you will get out of your prejudices, if you will get out of your selfishness, you will almost float out of your chair. You just come, like, you, you, this was baggage that was holding you down. 
And then you will be out of your chair ready to go to the difficult and the despised. You will go with confidence. You'll go in obedience. You will go with expectation. Believer, today is the day you get out of your chair and go to the field. Today is the day you begin to build a relationship with somebody that is difficult. Someone who is the, not the, uh, who's despised, who is not someone you would like to spend time with. Unbeliever. Today is the day you get out of your chair and you come to Jesus. You, you've been playing a game, you've been using the right words, or you haven't even been doing that. You've been calling yourself saved, using the right words, but you've never trusted Christ. Or you don't even bother, you're just, you've been holding it at arm's length, that's not something I'm interested in right now, I don't want to do that right now. Today is your day to get out of your chair and come to Christ. Admit that you're a sinner, believe that God has raised him from the dead, and choose to follow him. Know that just like you, everyone has sinned. And know that the wages of, those sin, of, of that sin is death, but God has given us eternal life, a gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. God proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus has already died for you. Right? That was 2,000 years ago. He knew everything you were going to be. He knew everything you were going to do, and yet he still died for you. And you, just like everyone else, can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. We're going to be having a, 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 a new members, new believers class here in just a few weeks. It'll be an opportunity for you. Maybe you're questioning this. I would tell you, don't wait for a few weeks to get this right. But that's another opportunity for you to come and ask questions and get that settled. If you can't do it this morning. If you won't do it this morning. Because you can. Believer, get out of your chair. Unbeliever, get out of your chair. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you... You, you, you prod us, you push us, you draw us out of our chairs. Lord, if we will lay aside those encumbrances that, that we, we have put on ourselves, that we choose, the, 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 the areas of our lives that we say we're just being patient when in, in fact it's just selfish procrastination, Lord, if we will move those aside, we will see a, a harvest-ready field all around us. We will see the relationships that need to be watered, need to be nurtured. We'll see where we need to scatter the seed. We will see where we need to reap the harvest. We will see where we need to continue to water that seed that has already been planted. God, those, those aren't things we have to worry about. We, we think we've got to figure all this out. We just have to be obedient. Trust you with the process. And we just do what you say. 
God, get us out of our chairs. Get us out in the field to do the sowing and reaping. Lord, this morning, get that unbeliever out of his or her chair, the one who has never trusted Jesus as Savior, that uses the words but doesn't, doesn't really get it, doesn't understand what they're saying. They've not made a heart change. They've not experienced salvation in you. Lord, I pray this morning they will get out of their chairs and come to you. We pray for your spirit to move in this place. In the mighty name of Jesus, who, 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 who does all this, who we are just, whom we are obedient to. We pray it in his name. Amen. So in this time of worship, I pray that you would get out of your chair. Maybe you need to accept Christ. Tom and Amy are in the back. Tom is in the back. Amy is not anymore, that's right. Tom is in the back. If you'd like to have someone explain it to you better, or just somebody to pray with you. There are others that, that you may know, your, your connect group teachers that you want to grab and ask to pray for you. They'd love to do that. They can explain these things to you. Me, after the service, sometime this week, whatever. Let us help you get out of your chair. Believer, get out of your chair. Take somebody's hand and pull them out of their chair too. Do it together. And we're called to do it together. Individual responsibility with corporate connectedness. That's what we're doing. Let's stand. Let's sing this morning. And let God work on our hearts as we do business with Him today.